0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm joined by returning guest, philosopher, and University of Notre Dame professor James Odison. James is a research fellow for the Independent Institute, as well as a senior scholar at both the Fund for American Studies and the Fraser Institute. He is the author of Actual Ethics, What Adam Smith Knew, The End of Socialism, Honorable Business, Seven Deadly Economic Sins, which we discussed last time he was on the show, In the book we're discussing today, co-authored with Steve McMullen, Should Wealth Be Redistributed? A Debate. Jim, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure.
0: So this is a debate volume. You and Steve go back and forth, taking different positions. What's the central topic of the debate and what broadly is... McMullen's position and what is your position?
1: Yeah, so the book is part of a series that uh, Rutledge has put out called uh, Little Debates About Big Questions. They have a bunch of different ones about free will and various other things. This one, the topic of this one is whether wealth should be redistributed. And the re in front of distributed is important. So it's uh, not just a question of, you know, where should wealth be produced or where should it be? But should we redistribute some? In other words, take wealth from some Segments of the population or the citizenry and redistribute it, give it to other segments of the population. And that's the debate. So the question is whether we should do it or not. And um, as you mentioned, Steve McMullen and I take uh, opposite sides of it, but um, that's kind of overstating it a bit. I think so. McMullen's argument, um, the the central part of it is our argument is that yes, wealth should be redistributed by the state. In other words, the state should engage in, there are various ways we might do it, but maybe through progressive taxation. Um, But specifically for certain um, kinds of purposes to achieve certain kinds of ends. Um, And the main one he's interested in is poverty. So he talks about poverty traps that some poor people, particularly in the the United States, face um, that makes them either unable to or only with great difficulty to participate in the economic life and the prosperity of the United States. Um, And he thinks that a little bit of uh, wealth redistribution, and I should emphasize, it's just a little bit. So he's advocating not getting rid of or replacing what wealth redistribution we already have. Uh, He argues for just increasing it a little bit and maybe targeting it to specific purposes, but he thinks that doing so can enable people who, poor people in particular, who at the moment are sort of closed out or shut out, as he puts it, um, of the economic prosperity and participating in economic life of the United States. It could enable them to participate more. And then uh, on my side My argument is less that wealth should not be redistributed than it is that most of the arguments given in favor of wealth redistribution don't actually succeed in making their case. And so I'll just mention one thing at the beginning here that uh, part of my argument. So I I premise my argument on what I call the equal moral agency principle, which is a principle I've talked talked about in some others of my works, including in Seven Deadly Economic Sins that you mentioned, and thank you for that. But this is the idea that that all human beings, this is a moral principle, that all human beings should be understood as being moral agents. That's really what distinguishes human beings from other kinds of creatures. They are able to make choices. They can say yes or no to things. And they're also, because of their moral agency, able to, and I think we should, hold them responsible for their choices. Um, They can be held responsible if things go badly, um, and they should um, enjoy the rewards if they make good decisions. Um, but that moral agency, agency principle, I claim, is an equal moral agency principle. So it applies to all human beings. And so my argument is that any time we would like to, for any reason—not just wealth redistribution—for any, any other purpose, if we want to force people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't want to do, we have to meet a pretty high argumentative burden. In other words, we have to say that. This particular case or this particular reason for violating what looks like a pretty foundational moral principle of equal moral agency um, is nevertheless justified by some important and you know sufficiently weighty reason to violate it. And my argument is that or my claim is that most of the arguments that are given for wealth redistribution don't actually meet that uh, argumentative burden. So um, there might be other ways to achieve um, the goals that wealth redistribution is aimed uh, at targeting. Um, that would be um, less burdensome to this equal moral agency principle. Um, and so it's 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 a high burden, but I think um, that's what, as it should be, because we're dealing with human beings uh, you know, and uh, human beings before you start uh, making them do things that they don't want to do um, or preventing them from engaging in activities they would like to engage in. I think you have to meet a pretty
0: high burden. I agree with that. Let me ask you a question to maybe bring out I think the intuition that a lot of people have that the burden does not need to be very high. I think there are two types of reasons that you can appeal to that push you in opposite directions about where the burden of justification lies, and both of them are, are seem powerful. And one is that if you make an analogy that is on a more human scale, that ordinary people understand you and me interacting together or me interacting with my neighbor, and forcing my neighbor to engage in some action that she doesn't want to engage in, taking her money or something to serve my ends. It seems obvious if you make the example concrete and specific with real people that the justificatory burden is very high. You can't just take other people's things or force people to do things against their will unless you have a very, very good reason. And even if you have a very, very good reason, you're still probably limited in just how you can do it. Dan Moeller argues that you you still probably take on then obligations after you do such a thing of restitution and gratitude and all these other things. So that's one set of intuitions that makes it seem as though the burden should be very high. But another one is status quo. If there's something that everyone has been doing for a long time, and it's very established in society, then changing that thing dramatically seems like that requires a high burden of justification. So we currently live in a society with large amounts of wealth redistribution. Does that make sense how those two different facts kind of push intuitions in opposite directions? Yeah,
1: no, I think it makes good sense. Um, and in fact, it reflects a lot of the argument that we engage in in this, in this volume uh, about how to understand that the both the intuitions at the micro level that you started out with and then uh, also well we already have this system so the idea of just incrementally you know changing it or adding a little bit at the you know at the margins why would that um, entail some you know some large new justificatory burden that has to be met so i think both of those are, are are good points let me start with the first about the, the at the micro level if that intuition holds and i think it is for most people that intuition does hold it's a, usually an interpersonal relationship so as you were suggesting you know between you and me I have something that I would that I want or need you have some property or money or something else that maybe I could use if I took it from you to serve my my end I think you're right that the general intuition people have is that me merely wanting or needing is not yet enough to suggest um, to justify me taking it from you against your will but we already do a lot of that. That gets to your second point. We do a lot of that in the United States. I mean, just to take the United States as an example, and we have been doing it for some time. But there are a couple of problems I would point out, and I, I discussed this in the book a bit. But one sort of generally, if you have a system of conventions or laws or practices that have been going on for a long period of time um, and that people have generally sort of conditioned themselves to or accept as um, acceptable or just the natural or um, normal state of things, I think that does uh, mean that there is a kind of default or a presumptive justification for it, but it's not an absolute justification. And there are some pretty spectacular cases in history when there have been long standing practices that subsequent generations realized, oh my gosh, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time, but maybe we shouldn't. And slavery is a big one. And the reason I mention slavery is because that issue is really, really cuts to the heart, I think, of this question about redistribution, because there are different conceptions of justice you might apply. Um, so one of the things we talk about in the book quite a bit is, well, what's the right conception of justice? And I argue for at the legal level, at the level of laws of a country or even of a state for a compensatory conception of justice. And what I mean by that is that if I have robbed from you or I've stolen from you, defrauded you out of something that was yours, let alone if I killed you or enslaved you, um, then I've caused some real and identifiable harm to you unwillingly, involuntarily on your part. And a compensatory justice, uh, notion of justice says, well, in cases like that, what you've done is committed an injustice. You've imposed an involuntary cost or harm on somebody else. And so now you are entitled to, from me, either indemnification, either I need to try to make you whole, or I should be punished or maybe even prevented before the fact, depending on the kind of case we're talking about. That seems a relatively straightforward kind of conception of justice that deals with a lot of the cases that seem Um, That would first come to our minds about theft, colonialism, slavery, imperialism, etc. But one of the main arguments for wealth redistribution um, relies not on a compensatory conception of justice, but what's sometimes called a distributionist um, conception of justice. And that is, let's look at the overall distribution of Wealth or prosperity or property in a society, and ask ourselves: Does that seem just, or does it seem fair? You know, maybe there's a great deal of inequality in society, or maybe if we redistributed some of the wealth from some places to some other places, overall utility would go up, or overall prosperity would go up, or it would lead to various kinds of benefits. Here's the problem with that, or one of the problems I think with that, on a compensatory conception of justice, the one I uh, the one I was defending. If you have a case like, um, as uh, McMullen discusses, and and we, we discuss, but he brings these cases up, like slavery in America's history, or when Europeans came to the New World and they started appropriating the Native Americans' land without compensation, these are cases that are readily addressable by means of the compensatory conception of justice. In other words, yeah, if you're enslaving somebody, you're taking somebody's land without compensation or without even a- asking permission. Those are straightforward cases of compensatory injustice, and so it's it's very easy to explain why it is that's immoral and why it is you are now owed some kind of compensation, or maybe I should be punished, or maybe both, some combination. On the other hand, if you subscribe to a uh, distributionist conception of justice um, di- or distributive justice, what that means is that we can't just immediately say that cases of, ens- of enslavement or cases of uh, usurpation are automatically unjust, instead what we have to say is, well, let's look at the resulting overall distribution of prosperity in the world, uh, maybe the overall distribution of utility, did it go up? And we might hope, <laughs> expect and hope that, well, slavery leads to a net decrease in utility, or um, it, it overall leads to a worse signature of distribution, of prosperity than um, than not having slavery. But what it doesn't allow you to say is that it's just wrong. And so my argument is that that's what we want to be able to say. What we want to be able to say is, say is that slavery is wrong regardless of the cost-benefit analysis that you do afterwards, or conquering people and taking their land and displacing them is wrong regardless of the cost-benefit analysis afterwards. So yeah, um, the status quo, I think, is something that does give some presumptive authority to conventions, laws, practices, procedures, etc. But it's certainly not um, absolute. And it is and it is uh, susceptible, I think, to revision in light of other considerations. And I think slavery and appropriation of land are prime examples of that.
0: Can McMullen overcome the objection you just raised by adopting both a distributive and a compensatory view of justice? Does he does he need to choose one or the other? Or can you have both And maybe a related question, is there any form of distributive justice that you find plausible, or do you think that the the concept is confused from the get-go?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and it's a hard question. So my argument would be, let's distinguish some levels. So if we're, again, looking at the micro level, so between you and me, the compensatory conception of justice, that seems intuitively anyway the right one to have. I can't just steal from you. You can't just steal from me, even if it would benefit you or even if it would benefit me. But it may well be that if I, you and I are friends or neighbors or we know each other, um, that I see that you are in a difficult position or facing difficult, challenging circumstances. Um, then maybe I, and we could call this a kind of distributive justice. Maybe then I have a moral obligation if I can help to help. And I think there is, I think there's good reason to think that, um, not only that's what people often do, do when they become aware of, uh, issues that, family members, friends, neighbors, community members, et cetera, they're facing difficulties. If a hurricane hits Louisiana, everybody, I mean, many people across the United States will um, donate and will try to help. And we can understand that. I mean, one way to understand that is just as an act of pure charity, but it might also be, we might give it a little bit more strength and say, no, that there is an element of justice in that, that I really ought to help. There's a kind of moral obligation. And one way to describe that is is a, a conception of distributive justice. But if you contrast that with the case at the, at the macro level, so say at the federal government of the United States, still, I think, or I would argue anyway, that the compensatory conception of justice applies. So um, it should, the federal government should not be engaging in theft and appropriation and fraud, et cetera, just as individuals shouldn't with one another. But the larger question about distributive justice, does the federal government have obligations the way a neighbor or a friend or a community member might have to people in need? One of the things that I think that challenges that, it might not be impossible to overcome, but one of the things that I think challenges that is that it's very difficult for the federal government to know what kind of aid would actually be aid, first of all. And second of all, what's the opportunity cost of the limited resources that the federal government has? That's something that you and I can assess or that I can assess on a local level much better. So in other words, I can, if I see you and I see what your situation is, I have a much better chance of figuring out what kind of help I could give that would actually constitute help. And then also balance that against whatever other whatever other obligations or responsibilities I have um, with my limited resources and figure out what's the what's a relatively more effective way to help you. And I can still, I think, describe that as a kind of distributive justice. But it's much more difficult for that to happen at the federal level. At the federal level uh, or at you know the governmental level, Um, What people typically don't have is the localized information about your situation. And they also don't have this sense of opportunity cost. In other words, what are are we giving up in order to help this person in this way? What other things that we might be able to do that we now no longer can do? What benefit could that have created? And I think those two questions make it much more difficult to have the distributive conception of justice at the macro level than it is at the micro level.
0: So to what extent... Is this a debate about ultimate goals and ends versus just means and in instrumental yeah. debate about how to achieve something you both agree about?
1: That's another fair point, and so we do um, we do talk about that quite a bit in the volume. So um, one of the things that we agree with is that uh, agree on is that poverty is a problem, and if we want to address poverty, what's the best way to deal with that? I'll caricature a bit uh, McMullen's position. You can stand in for him if you want to defend it. So one way to address po- or to think about addressing poverty is to ask, well, how can we make poor people more comfortable in their continuing poverty? In other words, yeah, they're, they're going to remain poor. We think of them as sort of, you know, a continuing part that never really changes of our society. Um, we just want to make them comfortable. From my perspective, that's not the right way to think about poor people or poverty um, in a country. I think what we want to do is to enable people to ascend out of poverty. And if you take that view, then the antidote to poverty is prosperity. So it's not just making people more comfortable in their poverty, it's enabling people to ascend so that they're no longer poor. And even if we argue that on some level or in some cases, maybe some temporary assistance is required, I think promoting a permanent or ongoing dependence is not the right way to think about treating other people who are our moral, equals, equal moral agency. So there is some question about, um, some discussion that we have about well, what's the best way to enable people, poor people, to address them and to enable them, as I put it, to rise out of poverty. Um, and there's quite a bit of discussion of empirical evidence about that, but I don't want to give up on the uh, on the other point, which is although there is just a there there is that aspect of the of the discussion about what you know empirically speaking is the best way to alleviate poverty. There is also the principal question, which is what's the right way to treat other human beings. And um, I'll give you just one analogy, if you'll allow me, one analogy um, that I raise in the book. So McMullen has this uh, welfare-enhancing argument for redistribution. So we might call it the welfare-benefit argument for for redistribution. If we redistribute, um, then this can lead to some uh, benefit, especially for the poor. And that gives us a prima facie reason to support it and to engage in it. Well, we could take exactly the same premises and uh, shift the target just a bit to give an argument that I think very few people would be willing to accept. and Here's my example, my analogy. Um, imagine somebody giving a religious welfare argument. So there, <clears throat> there is some, there is some empirical evidence that says that having a religious belief produces various good consequences in people's lives. It leads to more marriages, happier marriages, lower unemployment, and various other kinds of things that seem to be correlated with having reg- religious beliefs. Well, imagine somebody saying, uh, making the following argument. If we redistributed some of the wealth from some people to people who aren't sufficiently religious, and what would we do? Maybe require you know, a 1% religion tax on people um, so that we can enable people to go to church, or we can um, encourage religious education in public schools, maybe even require attendance at weekly church services or weekly masses or something. Even if it's the case that you could show that there is some empirical benefit that that could potentially lead to in people's lives, I think there'd be a very strong principled argument against that because religious freedom is too important. And so my argument is that, well, if you accept the the principle ban on the religious welfare argument, I mean, you could make other kinds of arguments too, a marriage welfare argument. There's argument, there's evidence that suggests getting married has all kinds of beneficial effects, even, you know, health effects, you know, so so should we require people to get married or tax people who are not married, you know, to encourage more marriage or something? I think on all of those kinds of cases, the argument would be no, even if there is empirical benefit or potential empirical benefit, uh, we shouldn't allow it. So I think that actually shifts the burden of proof for the person supporting uh, wealth redistribution that you need to overcome that. Why would those other cases, which also seem to be ultimately based on this principle of equal moral agency that I was mentioning before, if that's really the, the normative base or the, the principle of moral claim on which those prohibitions are based, why wouldn't it apply in a case like this?
0: Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a break to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening to these episodes and giving me the opportunity to speak with people I admire and read amazing books every week, every other week, whatever. If you are interested in helping this little engine that could of a show grow, uh, please just recommend it to a friend. Recommend it to a friend. Maybe give it a give it a five-star rating on one of those places you listen to it at. But really, if you just recommend it to someone, that, that goes a long way um, for a small show like this. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. Keep listening. And back to the show. What role does the concept of judgment play in your argument? The concept of
1: judgment, you mean on behalf of somebody who's thinking about helping another person, or how do you mean?
0: I mean, you have emphasized this concept in some other of your works, and it seems like a person developing as a human being and developing their own judgment plays a pretty central (coughs) role in your moral view of what constitutes a good life.
1: Yeah, and we talk a little bit about that in the book, but I'm happy that you uh, asked me this question, give me a chance to expand on what might be that idea a little bit more. So I have argued in other places that part of being a human being is developing good judgment. And what that means is, you know, good practical judgment is the ability to know what you ought to do or what you should not do in the particular situations in which you find yourself. And what I've argued in, uh, elsewhere, and I touch on that in this book, um, I what I've argued elsewhere is that that's really dependent on two things. The development of judgment, first of all, requires the freedom to be able to make choices, to say yes to some things and no to other things. So, if you're not allowed to say yes or no, you're just required, um, or you know, if everything is either required or prohibited, then you never have the op- the opportunity to make choices. Um, so, you have to be able to make choices. But then the second part of it, which is a little bit more difficult part, but actually is what's required for uh, developing judgment is that you have to be held responsible for the choices that you make so that you get the good feedback when you make good choices. If they lead to good out- outcomes, good things happen, including good feedback from other people, then that gives you the incentive to continue developing your judgment in good ways. But if you make bad choices, you need to be able to feel or experience the the consequences of bad choices as well, because that is what enables you to say, well, I don't want to do that again. Um, what did I do wrong? Let me think about uh, what I should do. Those are the pro, those are the constitutive elements of developing good judgment. So how might that apply to re- redistribution? So we might distinguish between people who are at the level of what the United Nations calls absolute poverty. So absolute poverty is about $2 per person per day, two um, contemporary uh, American dollars per person per day. If you're living at that level or lower, and there are people like that living at levels like that uh, around the world. Okay. At that state, at that level of extreme poverty or absolute poverty, the question of, well, how do I develop good reflective judgment basically doesn't even come up. Um, You're not really facing anything other than, can I survive the day? Can my children survive the day? So at that level, I think this argument about judgment really doesn't apply. But I think it does apply once people start to to rise above that level and they get into what we might call relative poverty. So in the United States, we have a great deal of relative poverty, meaning some people are much poorer relative to other people. Um, but in absolute terms, what you have in the in some countries, like the United States, not, a, not all countries, is very few people who are living at the level of absolute poverty and many more people who are just relatively poor in comparison to other people. So the way I think that applies to this question about judgment is that once people's absolute poverty needs are met, then what we should, I think, the way we should think about people is as being Full and true human beings with moral agency rather than continuing to think of them as somehow. And I think some people do think about the poor in this way as not really being capable of improving their own lives or developing good judgment or making good decisions for themselves. And I think that shows a, re- a profound disrespect for um, some segments of the population. So one of the required ways I think for us to become fully human is to take control of our own lives not remain at the um, at the mercy of other people and rising out of absolute poverty and making our way into constructing a life of meaning and purpose for ourselves, which does require um, independent judgment. And as you mentioned, both freedom and responsibility.
0: That's a good answer. Yeah, I know you don't linger on this point super hard in this book, but I've recently been reading your actual ethics and quite enjoying it. And uh, it seemed to be oh, a pretty thank sens- you very much. central part of that work. And I like the way you were talking about it. Something that comes up really centrally in your debate with McMullen here, and I think this is a really important point generally when you're arguing about policy questions or even even on an interpersonal level, is, is the idea of alternatives. You can make an argument that some policy, say some redistributionist policy, might on net have a benefit, but that's not the end of the argument, because it might also be the case that there is some other policy that would have even more benefit. Or there might be some other policy with an equal benefit, but that is less restrictive or less morally troubling for some reason. And if that's the case, if you have two policies that are equal in terms of a utilitarian calculus, but one is more morally troubling, you should prefer to take the other option. You should prefer to take the less morally troubling option. And one thing that occurs to me throughout reading this is that McMullen, to his credit, This is not a debate about, say, socialism versus capitalism. You both are broadly in the liberal tradition of preferring a market order and private property. He's just preferring it with the addition of this redistributionist add-on. You could call it social democratic capitalism or something. But he, to his credit, acknowledges that there are things that the state does, such as he brings up occupational licensure that disadvantage the poor, that make it harder for people to raise themselves out of poverty by making it more difficult to go into various occupations or requiring you have to pay a lot of money or go to school or whatever to get certain occupational licenses. And sometimes that's ostensibly based on safety, but a lot of times it's, it's not. You know, you need a license to be a flower arranger in some states. So right. my question is, you know, why wouldn't he first focus on what can the state do to stop restricting poor people? And it might turn out that that has orders of magnitude more effect than redistribution. And, and he brings up the high cost of education and housing and healthcare, And those are just prime examples of where the state is actively harming the poor by restricting production and enforcing monopolies in these sectors of the economy and making making the lives of poor people enormously hard. I don't know if that's a question you want to comment on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're raising a good set of issues. Um, and I think those are difficult challenges for McMullen's argument. So you're right. I mean, housing, you know, healthcare, occupational licensure, the, you know, these are areas where it is clear that it's very difficult for, you know, the poorer you are, the more difficult it is for you to have uh, acceptable uh, options or you know, good options in any of these areas. And, you know, what, what should we do? I think there is a presumption perhaps that McMullen makes us so I'll, I'll speak on behalf of him for a second um I think that um, there is something of a presumption that well the, for the most part um, the restrictions on uh, you know say um, housing for example that includes not just zoning restrictions but also building standards that are required to be met and uh, maybe environmental standards that are required to be met that these are good things that have good results we're doing these for good reasons so, Although, yes, it might be cheaper to build without requiring various kinds of permits, et cetera, without meeting various kinds of building standards. Nevertheless, the trade-off is not worth it. So, yeah, it would be cheaper. Maybe more people could have houses, but um, what kind of quality would those houses be? Um, and I think there's an assumption also on uh, a similar kind of assumption at work in other areas, education, healthcare that you mentioned. Um, but also with occupational licensure, I think there is there tends to be an assumption that there must be good reason why um, certain occupations require by the state. The state requires not just a license for it, but maybe a great deal of training and maybe time and maybe money and expense to get those licenses. Um, Because if we didn't have that, and here's the assumption, if we didn't have that, we might get inferior products, inferior service, and it might have unintended negative consequences on the, the lives of people who you know, are going to these subpar um, providers of goods and services. So I think there is that assumption that that these things must be there for a reason, even if I don't, you know, I or we don't know in any particular case exactly why this particular restriction is in place. Uh, But nevertheless, they must be there for some reason. But I think that has to be, and here's why I think it is a challenge for McMullen's position. Even if we stipulate to that, if we say, yeah, let's just assume you're right, that they're, you know, whatever these restrictions are or whatever these these standards are that have to be met, there must be good reason for them. Even if we stipulate, yeah, there are good reasons for all of them or for most of them, um, or we can just assume that as a default. Still, I think the next step in the argument or the next question you have to ask is, is it worth the trade-off? And if the trade-off is, well, now there are many more people who could have started businesses but can't, or who could have housing but can't, or could have had educational options or opportunities but now can't that trade-off is real, and those consequences are real. And so I think before you would just endorse the restrictions and say, well, they lead to good ends, I think you have to look at the opportunity cost. And that's one of the difficulties, I think, with the uh, wealth redistribution, with many versions of the wealth redistribution argument more generally, which is we have to look at the opportunity cost. These are not just pure goods. So if you think about it, maybe there's something else we, we could talk about if you'd like. But One of the things that most discussions of wealth redistribution does not address is wealth production. So it's as if wealth either um, exists in infinite amounts or it will always be produced no matter what we do. And so the real question is, well, how do we distribute it? Um, There's not a lot of investigation into, well, what are the causes, institutional and otherwise, that allow people to produce wealth, that allow people to produce prosperity, And if you go back to your case of occupational licensure, you know, there's been pretty careful study of things like this and estimates of what actually is being lost, how much prosperity is being left on the table. And I think at a minimum, what you have to do is at least take a look at that. And you're going to have to justify if you want to say, yeah, I understand there's all of that potential prosperity that we're giving up for the sake of occupational licensure. Okay. But you need to actually acknowledge it and make that case. And I think oftentimes that case is just not made.
0: I wonder if he would agree because he does acknowledge that occupational licensure is a problem, and it, I don't, I don't recall if he says obviously it's something that we need for reasons of consumer safety or whatever. But nevertheless, it's a problem. My impression was that he was advocating, if not abolition, like s- substantial liberalization of occupational licensing. I wonder if he he might can see that that's true of a lot of these things, that you could probably pare them down to the 10 or 15% that's genuinely surrounding issues of safety. I would go further, but I think even someone who favors these policies generally would could probably acknowledge that a lot of them are just kind of naked rent-seeking on on behalf of producers.
1: Yeah. And I think he could. And as you mentioned at the outset, you know, he also is sort of in the, uh, you know, the liberal, uh, market-based regime, you know, that, that's the, in general, that's the uh, position he takes, sort of a classical liberal or a kind of liberal, um, political system that paired with a kind of, uh, market economy. So I think he might be open to something like that. You know, what I would say is maybe two things. One, to the extent that you're, that his position is open to that. Um, it looks like it's it's coming dangerously close to my position, which is that the default should be to assume um, that people can um, and are uh, are equipped able to lead lives on their own and make decisions on their own, which would be a regime that is founded on the principle of compensatory justice. you know if you if you inflict harm on another, then you have to indemnify the other, et cetera um, with exceptions to that only being allowed when you can make a specific case that this is a sufficiently grave case or a a case of sufficient benefit that it should override that. That sounds like we're getting uh, pretty close to that position, which is what I was arguing for. But there's one other point I would make about this, uh, Chris, and this is something that I I know that you'll be familiar with and maybe uh, many of your listeners would also be familiar with. It comes from the school of economics called public choice. And the, the general worry about that is that Oftentimes, if you empower an agency or a, a bureau, an office, a, federal, a government office, bureau agency, um, with some very limited and specific mandate, so only in the 10% or 15% of cases where some specific um, harm is either imminent or is happening, in those cases, you can intervene and do something else, um, either impose a, you know an occupational licensure requirement or something else. What happens inevitably over time is that that expands. And if you think about many of the large programs that the United States federal government employs now, if you think about uh, Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security, all of those were um, justified at their beginning under very limited and restricted cases. No, not everybody is going to need this. Only the widows of civil war and military veterans, people who died in military, they're the only ones who are going to be the beneficiaries of this or et cetera. And yet in all of those cases, what, what have we seen happen? They've grown uh, tremendously, way beyond whatever the theorist might have wanted to begin with. And I I suggest that as an insight from the Pu- School of Public Choice, which is that oftentimes the agents who are the people who are working in these agencies, um, they'll have their, their agendas of their own and their agendas or their goals or what, what they would like to do may or may not align with whatever the theorists envision to begin with. Um, in many cases, um, they get rewarded for expanding the scope of what they do. They don't get rewarded for restricting the scope of what they do. And so there seems to be an almost inevitable incentive for them to expand these programs well beyond wherever they were to begin. with. So the reason I bring that up is because um, I think that's a danger that needs to be that has historically taken place, and that would need to be accounted for before we would even begin uh, making the case for, you know, some limited version of regulation of um, building standards, of educational standards, of occupational licensure, et cetera. Doesn't mean it can't be overcome, but I think it has to be taken into consideration.
0: You'd be more satisfied reading an account that acknowledged the the research in public choice economics and and tried to take serious steps to to overcome those difficulties that that mission creep is a is a pervasive feature of you know starting a new government bureau or something and and regulatory capture the idea that right
1: that's the, the other part
0: the agencies that are designed to oversee and regulate and control these industries often just get staffed by industry insiders themselves for for obvious reasons they're the experts they're the ones who are most interested so you'd want to see someone acknowledging and taking seriously these concerns and then proposing things to to overcome them right There's another element that I wonder if you think McMullen characterized you accurately here. He often seems to indicate that you're, you know, emphasizing charity very heavily. That wasn't my impression. Uh, Well, let me try to characterize what I think your view is. And you tell me if I'm wrong. It seemed to me that you think that charity is important and plays an important role, but is not a panacea and is subject to some of the same issues, some of the same issues that state welfare might be subject to, but less so, and is more subject to market tests, or at least that the people giving the money are giving their own money and have an incentive to exercise their judgment to give it in ways that they find appropriate. But that the the main driver of getting people out of poverty is this general liberal order of respect for person property and voluntary contracts and things. Um, That charity plays a role, but it's not really the prime mover that seems to me. Well, is that about right? Or uh, do, do you think I'm characterizing you correctly?
1: No, I think you are. Yeah. So I think oftentimes and I did do talk about charity um, in, um, in my discussions. I think oftentimes in um, in discussions of wealth redistribution. And I think this was true for McMullen. I don't think I'm unfairly characterizing him here. He seems to set up this sort of dilemma that we have two choices: either the government um, engages in various kinds of um, welfare-oriented redistribution of wealth, or the poor are left to fend for themselves and they have uh, no real options and they will just remain poor. So we sort of we either accede to his argument um, or we just you know hard we harden our hearts and turn our you know turn our avert our eyes from the poor. Um, And so uh, one important part of that argument that I think uh, of that discussion that needs to be brought up is, well, you know, human beings are actually quite charitable. You know, in the United States, we give hundreds of billions of of dollars a year to various charities. There are thousands of charities and nonprofit organizations. Um, So human beings are quite charitable. And that is even in the presence of a pretty substantial um, welfare state that the United States has. Um, so I don't think that should be just dismissed. It's something that we should take into consideration. If the welfare state itself, the government, uh, the government's involvement in these activities, I mean, imagine contrary to fact that it were to um, decline or decrease, um, what would happen to charitable giving on the part of of uh, private citizens and private organizations? Um, we can make a speculation, but and maybe there's some evidence that um, that's suggestive about that, but. Um, I think um, it's at least I have I feel confident in saying it wouldn't go away, so it would still be there, maybe it would even increase. But I do think that, you know, that dilemma of either the government does it or there's no help for the poor, um, that's also um, a false dilemma in another way, because if you think about some of the large, and I do mention this in the book, too, but think about some of the largest companies in the world, the most successful companies in the world, like Walmart, for example. Um, you know, Walmart is a company that has made, you know, it, it, it has more employees than any other company in the world. So measured in some ways, it is the largest company in the world. But it has had that success not by catering to the rich, but by catering to the poor, specifically to the poor. And so one part of the way that I think a market economy in a liberal order that we've been talking about can ben- can create benefit for the poor is through the commercial engagement of poor people. So Walmart, hires poor people. McDonald's hires people who are at the beginnings of developing their skills. Many of these companies, and we can name many others like that, that also hire immigrants or recent immigrants to the country, teaching them the English language, giving them um, health care benefits, providing them pathways to moving up through the ranks, increasing and developing their skills, et cetera. So there's a great deal of both charity on the one hand, but also actual economic interest, which might also in part be driven by charity, but also economic interest in uh, addressing the, the poorer members of society, enabling them to rise out of it. So I think these are other ways, and that goes back to your, your initial point, which is that maybe there are other ways that um, we could address the problems of the poor that don't involve, um, or don't at least obviously involve um, violating anything like the uh, equal moral agency of other of some citizens in order to benefit others.
0: There's another option that is between pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and getting a job on the one hand and charity or even welfare on the other that, that you mentioned, I think for space considerations, this, is, this is, doesn't become a main point, but you want to say a little bit about the option of mutual aid societies and, and you know, this is, this is kind of a form, of, it's kind of a species of charity to some extent, but it's, I think, maybe more sustainable because there is an element of self-help to it as well. Um, So that the people who are receiving the benefits are also involved in, you know, in the organizations themselves. And and these have been kind of legislated, not out of existence, but much less effective than they used to be.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and I'll give credit to some people, some historians and, and, and economists who've really done some great work on this. So David Beto has done um, a historian who's done some great work on describing really the, you know, the elements in the pervasiveness, especially in the late 19th century and the early 20th century in America, of these self-help societies or civil societies. So what these were is especially in the poorest parts of the United States and especially among black segments in the United States. I mean, remember, the time we're talking late 19th century early 20th century, when especially Black citizens in, the, in America could not rely on the federal government or, um, in many cases, there wasn't much charity either to help them out of their um, of their difficult situations and their, uh, the poverty they were facing. So what, uh, what began to be created by these communities were these self-help organizations. And what they were, they provided amazing... So these were voluntary organizations. Communities would get together and they would Pool their limited resources together to enable other people to do things like have life insurance, have health insurance, pay for actual medical care, send children to to school, provide uh, employment training. That they did this all entirely in voluntary ways. These were quite robust communities, which had again kind of two effects. One was, on the one hand, it provided uh, it by pooling these resources. It provided resources for. You know, emergency situations that any of their members might face. If you face an emergency situation, we can help you. But it also had a kind of centripetal force in the community because it brought people together in a way where they now felt responsible for in a kind of solidarity, if I can use the you know the Catholic virtue term of solidarity. Now they, they began to see each other's fortunes tied up with one another. So that your success is my success, your failure is my failure. Um, so it generated really robust communities as well. Another recent book that's talked a little bit about this um, is by uh, Rachel Ferguson and Marcus Whittaker called Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. That just came out um, now about a year ago. Um, I highly recommend it to you and to your uh, your uh, your listeners.
0: Um, I'm writing but, uh, it down and I, I'm yeah, immediately you, you should, interested you in should reading take it. Take a
1: look at it and maybe interview them as well. But that gives a great deal of detail about just how many such organizations in particular um, Blacks were able to create. And really, they created, in many cases, sort of enclosed market economies among themselves. So they were enabling themselves, um, they were giving themselves markets, they were respecting and enforcing each other's contracts um, and and transactions and exchanges, um, enabling themselves as communities to really rise um, in ways that they hadn't before, and in many cases, weren't legally allowed to before that. So I, I think those kinds of organizations are are very powerful and they have been part of the fabric of American history. You're right that in um, you know the second half of the 20th century, they have eroded uh, quite a bit. and you know perhaps that's because the federal government has um, success, successively or incrementally assumed more and more of those same responsibilities, you know for raising children, for educating children, for providing health care, insurance, et cetera, you know, employment training, skills training. So as the federal government has assumed more and more of those responsibilities, those self-help, those civic organizations have tended to uh, wane because there's little left for them to be responsible for. But that does give some indirect evidence. And this is maybe something to consider that in the absence of government help, you might see a reemergence of these kinds of organizations that we used to have um, and that were quite successful in the past.
0: And my understanding, and it's been a while since I've read David's book, David was on the show to talk about a different book, but I looked at his book a long time ago, and I think the crowding out that you mentioned is, is part of the story for why they fell out of favor. But I think there are also some active ways in which they've been suppressed. Uh. I think regulation of insurance companies and provision of insurance has suppressed the insurance functions of these societies. So these societies are still around. You could still join a Masonic Lodge and the Odd Fellows and be an elk. But they were always social clubs, and they're still social clubs. But in addition, they used to have this economic function that was more robust. And I think a lot of them ended up falling afoul of insurance regulations that they couldn't survive basically as being qualified as an insurance company and still you know, run in the same way that they were running before. I yeah. think that's still, that still goes on, and, and that's a shame.
1: No, agreed. And you know, and I I would bow to uh David Beto's expertise about this, but my under my limited understanding of that is that it might actually be a reflection of a point you made earlier about regulatory capture. So, you know, in whose interest was it to get rid of these, um, the insurance aspect of some the of AMA. these. Right. They don't want that competition. So what do they do? They lobby the government to effectively regulate the competition out of existence.
0: I want to read kind of an extended quote from McMullen that gives some summary objections to your view. And if you don't mind, I want to read this quote in its entirety and then go back and read individual sections and just give you a minute or so to respond to each one. Okay. Here's the whole quote. The main thesis of this response is that Audison's argument against redistribution pushes a number of arguments just one step too far. Poverty is declining, but not for everyone and mostly because of government action. The moral hazard problem is real, but the effect is not large. Economic freedom is important, but there is no reason to believe that we have to choose between a market economy and having a real safety net. Most fundamentally, it is entirely reasonable and just to expect that everyone contribute to the funding of welfare programs. So that's the whole quote. You make good arguments that you push one step too far in his view. So, right. so the first one, poverty is declining, but not for everyone and mostly because of government action. What's your response to that?
1: Uh, poverty is declining. Yes, it is declining. Uh, not for everybody. I would say that's true with qualification, mostly by government action. There's no good evidence for that. So the second part that it's, it's not declining for everybody. Of course, you know there is no perfect system. No matter what system we talk about, there will be people who fall through the cracks, as it were. But what you have seen in market economies like that of the United States is substantially everyone improving and the relative rates of poverty have gone down. And that's not just the United States, but worldwide to historically unprecedentedly low levels. So is it literally every single human being? No, Um, but we've made more progress on that than I think we ever have in human history. And the other part about the the other claim is that, well, it's mostly by government action. Well, there's a lot of evidence that would contest that. And one way to think about this, and I'll just give you this, that's an empirically testable hypothesis. And so one way to look at it is let's look at the countries of the world. Um, Rank them by the extent to which their governments intervene in the economy or maybe just uh, redistribute wealth in their economies. And then let's look at the relative levels of prosperity of the poorest parts of those countries. And let's see if there are any patterns that emerge. And the patterns that emerge are very clear. And we've now had evidence that's been accumulating for several decades about this worldwide the greater the extent to which a country's government is redistributing wealth or otherwise intervening in an economy, the less well does its poorest fare. And the reverse is true too. So um, in other words, the the freer the economy, the less of a government intervenes in an economy, the better off the poor of that country do. So that would, I think, shift the burden of proof that, um, well, it looks like it's not actually the government action. And one other little piece of evidence about that is that In the United States, um, so since the, uh, the war on poverty began under Lyndon Johnson, well, how much money have we spent? Well, estimates vary a little bit, but it's about $30 trillion has been spent on various poverty programs since. I mean, that's a big number, $30 trillion. And by the government's own estimate, well, they haven't really done very much. So that looks like, well, maybe that's not the best way to decrease poverty. That opens up the question of, well, to the extent that people have been rising out of poverty, has it been through um, various kinds of welfare and in-kind transfers that might have had some effect? Surely, it's had some effect, um, but it looks like that the positive effect you get from that is swamped by the overall effect you can have from having a market economy in which everybody's persons, properties, and voluntary promises and contracts are, are protected.
0: Another point about the Great Society programs and the War on Poverty, and I think this is true of a lot of a lot of policies is that there was a good trend of progress being made prior to the implementation of these policies. And maybe that progress and the broader cultural, you know, zeitgeist of wanting to do something about poverty both contributed to legislative efforts. So that causation get gets switched up here. It's Poverty going away and people being concerned about poverty caused legislation rather than legislation causing poverty to diminish. I don't know the the exact trends, but my recollection, and I think you mentioned this in the book, is that poverty trends were already declining quickly and declined less quickly after the implementation of the Great Society. Oh, well,
1: that's it. You have that exactly right.
0: Okay, the next, the next chunk of this is the moral hazard problem is real, but the effect is not large.
1: I mean, that's a matter of, of judgment and perspective, I guess. So, you know, what is the moral hazard problem? Uh, the moral hazard problem in general is that to the extent that people think that potential bad outcomes from actions they're considering would either be mitigated or paid for or alleviated by somebody else, it inclines them at the margins to engage not in less, but in more of that activity. And there's quite a lot of evidence that that seems to be an endemic feature of human nature. So an easy example is to say, well, you know, if, suppose I said to you, Gambling is immoral. You shouldn't gamble. But if you do gamble and lose any money, I'll pay all of your losses. Well, OK, so if you if I just said that and you believe me, um, what would you do? Well, you you, know, you would do what, million, what millions of people do. They would go and begin gambling, but you do it even more. Even people who didn't gamble before would be inclined to do uh, to gamble more. So the question about that is, well, what about other kinds of behavior? You know, does that apply to other kinds of behavior? And I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it is what human beings do. They assess risk, often imperfectly, we make mistakes about assessing risk, but they engage in behaviors on the basis of their assessment of risk, and they do take into consideration, well, if something bad happens, is there somebody or something or some program or policy or agency that would make me whole or that would, that would alleviate the bad consequences if I choose poorly? And the extent to which you have programs like that, you get a lot more of it. One example might be the 2008-2009 economic downturn. So if we tell lenders, uh yeah, no, we want you to lend to people um, with low credit scores and maybe in other words assume greater risk, but don't worry, if you lose money, we'll make sure that um you know, we'll insure you or we'll make sure that we'll make you whole. Well, what do you get? You get people lending money in all kinds of risky things and it seems like it, it becomes a kind of rational behavior. Why wouldn't they do that? If they think all the upside comes to me, all the downside goes to you, sure, why wouldn't people do that? So I think uh, moral hazard really is an important thing. I mean, you know, if he says it's not as important, okay, there might be other things that are yet more important, but I don't think we can just overlook.
0: Smaller scale example for anyone who is an addict or has addicts in their lives. It's Moral hazard is a term mostly used in econ, but you know, a big part of AA literature, for instance, focuses on the concept of enabling and not enabling people, and it's related. If you tell your son that you'll bail him out and let him crash on your couch as long as he wants every time he hits rock bottom or something, you are softening the blow and paying the costs of alcoholism, for instance, is likely to not be helping them in the long term.
1: That's another instance of what would be moral hazard, right?
0: Economic freedom is important, but there's no reason to believe that we have to choose between a market economy and having a real safety net.
1: I mean, fair enough. So economic freedom is important. I'm glad that he recognizes that. But there's no reason that we have to choose between, what are the exact words?
0: There is no reason to believe that we have to choose between a market economy and having a real safety net.
1: Yeah. I mean, no, we can't have that. I mean, there are many countries that do have that. The United States is one. The Scandinavian countries, which are countries that he talks about, we talk about in the book, these are other examples. And I think it is certainly logically and also economically compatible. You can have a largely free market economy. I mean, the Scandinavian countries rank very highly on the economic freedom of the world index. So, you know, from the the, the Fraser Institute and other people put out. So they have quite free economies, but they couple it with fairly substantial welfare programs and wealth redistribution programs. So, no, you can have those. So the question I would say is it's not that, that it's impossible to have both. And I think maybe his position is we should have a kind of balance um, you know, between these two, not have welfare programs that are so big that it endangers the market economy on the one hand and not on the other hand have you know a worship of a market economy to the extent that we don't allow any kind of welfare uh, programs. So I think he's looking for a kind of balance there. My 32nd response to that would be to raise a question, which is, each step that we go in the direction of having uh, welfare programs, state-run welfare uh, programs, welfare benefit programs, and also redistribution, is there something we're giving up? And that's a question that a great deal of economic analysis has been able to study. And the, the lesson seems fairly clear that what you're giving up is at each stage, you're giving up incrementally more overall prosperity that you would have had. So the question to ask is, what are we giving up to do that? Um, and we look at um, we might look at particular benefits that we get from the welfare state, but I think it should also, and I think this would be the challenge that I would give to McMullen or others who are making this argument. I think you need to give us an accounting of what it is we're giving up, which will be some amount of overall prosperity that could enable future benefit, even greater benefit down the road. So I think we need to acknowledge that and then actually, you know, make the make the case that, well, but it's worth it. And oftentimes that case is not made, it's not even addressed. Maybe yeah. one other thing. Could I mention one other thing very quickly, Chris? Yeah, I'm course. sorry. One kind of potential poverty trap. So, you know, McMullen's interested in poverty traps, but one kind of poverty trap that he doesn't discuss that I think is relevant to this question is the enormous amount of debt that many of these countries are generating. You know, the United States in its history has created more wealth in real terms than any other country in the history of the world, uh, but it has now also created more debt in real terms than any other country in the history of the world. You know, and what what is the debt for the United States? I looked it up right before we started talking. We're at about thirty two trillion dollars in debt right now, but that doesn't include off budget items of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Doesn't
0: include the really expensive thing.
1: Right. Exactly. So if you add those in, you know, what are our total unfunded liabilities? You know, it's something like one hundred and eighty trillion dollars. Okay, you know, what is that? You know, five hundred and sixty thousand dollars per Man, woman, and child per person in the United States—that's a huge opportunity cost. So that is a huge cost that somebody's going to have to pay at some point. And I think if you're thinking about, you know, adding more uh, wealth redistribution beyond what we already have had and are currently currently have, which is McMullen's suggestion, then I think you have to make the you have to at least address that somebody's going to have to pay that. And how does that cost detract from the potential benefit you see right now?
0: The last part of this quote, most fundamentally, it's entirely reasonable and just to expect that everyone contribute to the funding of welfare programs.
1: Sure. So, I, I mean, I would re-describe that. And the claim I make at the end of the book, my last contribution to the book, is that I think being a virtuous person requires not only not causing harm to others in the, you know, in the way that might invoke compensatory justice, but also making a positive commitment to use each of our... Uh, sets are unique sets of time, talent, and treasure uh, to benefit not only ourselves but to benefit others. So, to that extent, and if he's willing to allow that kind of redescription of his claim, I think I would agree. But I think what he's really after is saying that the that really the only way you can fulfill obligations of virtue is by paying the government to execute or make good on some of the um, welfare programs or the you know, the welfare benefits that he's interested in. I think again that's a false dilemma. In many cases, what it requires is personal action on each of our individual parts. And I think it is true that we won't be fully virtuous unless we engage not only in justice, refraining from uh, injuring others, but also uh, positive beneficence. This is an Adam Smithian term, but positive beneficence, where we engage in partnership, association, transaction, relationships with others where both sides benefit. So I think we do have an obligation to do that. I just think there's more ways to do that than only through asking
0: the government to do it for us. What do you think is the strongest case for redistribution outside of compensatory redistribution?
1: Yeah, I think the strongest case he makes is maybe there are are a few uh, good points that he makes, but I'll just focus on one. I think maybe the strongest argument that he makes uh, is this notion of poverty traps, that there are certain thresholds of wealth that people need before they can really engage productively in a market economy. Um, And I think that's a reality in the United States. Um, I think he and I would diagnose that slightly differently. And maybe that goes back to part of our conversation we had earlier about what are some of the causes of those poverty traps? Um, And maybe the poverty, the the lack of resources itself is not a cause of poverty traps, but itself is caused by something else, which is often institutional uh, requirements um, and restrictions that prevent people from being able to improve their own lives and conditions nevertheless I think it is true that there are people in even in relatively wealthy places like the United States who face difficulties who despite their best efforts it's very difficult for them to be able to, to get out of debt um, to uh, enter the market economy or enter any kind of real economy productively and in those kinds of cases I think maybe we are called on well first to look at whatever the restrictions are that are preventing them from doing that are we target? are there and there are there are you know, there are various kinds of laws and policies that seem to specifically target poor people and to restrict the ability of poor people to improve their lives. So that would be the first thing. Let's get rid of those. And to the extent that those exist, let's get rid of them. But then on the other hand, I think um, in a kind of spirit of solidarity and also a charity that goes beyond uh, justice, I think um, we are called to help people that we can in ways that we know who need help in ways that we can. I think we're called to do it.
0: Do you have any recommendations for books that you think would complement this work particularly well? Yeah. In
1: fact, I just mentioned at the end of the book, we do have some suggestions for other readings. I would mention a couple, you know, maybe maybe ones that go against my position. Um, If you have not read uh, G.A. Cohen's little book called Why Not Socialism? Came out in 2009. You know, that's that's a defense of socialism, but it uses some of the kinds of arguments that we've uh, talked about. Uh, takes it in a very different direction. Another one I would mention is more recently is uh, Mariana Mazzucato. So she's an economist, an Italian economist, who has written quite a bit about economic prosperity in conjunction with the state. And so she's got a book called The Entrepreneurial State, um, in which she makes the claim, I think it came out in 2015 or so, Mazzucato. And her argument is that most of the great innovations that we credit private enterprise with or private actors in market economies actually came about either only because there was state intervention or state support or state investment um, or was greatly uh, helped by that. Um, So those are a couple of books I would recommend to readers who are skeptical of my argument and maybe a little bit more sympathetic to uh, McMullen's argument and want to see more about uh, how that might be defended. So I would recommend both of those. And then maybe I'll mention just one other book that I draw on in constructing my own argument. This is a book by somebody named Walter Scheidel called The Great Leveler. That came out in 2017. That book is a historical survey of attempts, of large-scale attempts to, to create equality in communities, either in local communities, and larger scale communities, even in entire countries. And it comes to the rather dispiriting conclusion, or I guess inspiring, depending on your perspective, that the only ways we've ever been able, historically speaking, been able to figure out how to get people, you know, large groups of people to be relatively equal, have been through pretty bad things. So things like total state collapse, widespread uh, pandemics that kill, like the Black Plague that killed millions of people, very large scale warfare. Um, So these are things he calls these things, you know, these are the great levels. He calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we haven't really been able to figure out despite hundreds, maybe thousands of attempts. We haven't been able really to figure out how to generate equality among people, and material equality among people in society without leveling them down. So we can't level people up as a group, we level them down, and we're pretty good at figuring out ways to do that. But it, it involves things like violence and death and destruction.
0: Cutting yeah. down the tall trees is easier than growing the small ones. Yep. <laughs> yep. Do you have any new books or uh, projects you're working on right now that you want to plug? Ah, uh, thanks for asking. So maybe a future thing. Yeah,
1: I'm working on a a book on human dignity right now. Um, the concept of human dignity. So uh, thank you for asking about it. So you know, the, the one minute pitch is that uh, you know, human dignity. This concept of human dignity is kind of the moral north star of a lot of business ethics literature of development e- economics literature of bioethics literature everybody appeals to human dignity but when you look at the different ways that human dignity is used it turns out in the literature that people use it and claim that it leads to all sorts of different kinds of conclusions in fact many of them are mutually inconsistent so that tells me as a as a trained philosopher that there must be something wrong either with the way people are using that concept or with the concept itself and i think a lot of that literature that, that points to this moral north star of human dignity is really, I, I call it volume two. So sort of, these are sort of applications of a concept where people assume that volume one has already been written. So somebody has already written volume one that explains what this concept is and justifies the concept um, itself, gives the necessary and sufficient conditions. But I don't think that that case has actually been made. So I'm going to try to make uh, write volume one. We'll see how successful I am.
0: Do you have a timeline on that at all?
1: I mean, don't hold me to this, Chris, uh, but I'm not. hoping to complete the uh, draft of the manuscript this summer. So, uh, I mean, maybe by this time next year, we can have a conversation about that.
0: Well, I'll be looking forward to that. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work?
1: A couple of places. So one is uh, I have a website, which is just my name, jamesaudison.com uh, So you can go there and I keep up a lot of the stuff that I write and you can find other things about me. Also, almost all, uh, all of my books are available on places like Amazon. So if you go to Amazon, um, you know, there's an author's page. that has all my stuff. And then you can go to my uh, my university website. Um, I teach at the University of Notre Dame. And so that includes a lot of the work I do as well.
0: Awesome. I'll include those as well as the book recommendations on the show notes. My guest today has been James Audison, And his book, once again, co-authored with Steve McMullen, is Should Wealth Be Redistributed? A Debate. Jim, thanks so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex.
1: My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.